Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, as Bob said, my name is uh, Andrew Brown, and I'm the Director of Youth Ministry here at New Life. And today we're going to be continuing a series on the book of James called The Undivided Life. We've been working through this book section by section every time I preach. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 13 through 4, 3, looking at what it means to be an undivided community. Now, I heard a story the other day about a father who looked out his back window and he saw his kids fighting in the yard. You know, they're yelling at each other, they're getting each other's faces, they're pointing at one another. And so the, the father, he runs outside and he's like, what's going on here? And he's, he gets them and breaks it up and says, what's happening? And his littlest one, his daughter, looks up at him and says, come on, Dad, we're just playing church. And I know that is kind of comical, but it's also kind of sad when you really think about it. And I don't know if this story really happened or not, but I do know that that is the way many people think about church. They think church is where self-righteous people go to fight about trivial things. Unfortunately, that's not just perception. Think about all the times in the past few years where you've witnessed brothers and sisters in Christ fighting, whether in person or on social media, about a whole host of things from mask mandates to race relationships, same-sex attraction, vaccines, political affiliations, could go on and on with things. The church today seems to have a fighting problem. And what's so sad about that is the church was meant to display the peace of God to the world. The church is supposed to be a place where the unbelieving world gets a glimpse into the future kingdom of Christ. The church was meant to be like a window into the unity and the peace that exists in heaven. When people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship Jesus together in peace. Unfortunately, that is not what the outside world often sees when it looks at the church. Many times, instead of a glimpse of heaven, they get a picture of hell. And many of us here know firsthand just how hellish these church fights can be. Now, just to be clear here, I'm not saying that all church fights are bad. Some church fights are 100% necessary and justified. If someone denies the divinity of Jesus, for instance, then we need to be ready to fight. Some church fights are inescapable and can even be good because they reveal who is genuine and who is not. But these fights are not something we should be pursuing, and oftentimes they're going to come about on their own. Rather, the consistent command of the Bible is for believers to be pursuing peace. Here's just two examples. Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the church is called to be a community that pursues peace. So here at New Life, if we are to be a place that pictures and reveals heaven to the unbelieving world, then we must become a community of peacemakers rather than peacetakers. 
And so today as we continue in the book of James, we're going to be looking at three characteristics of peacemakers within the church. So if you have your Bible, please now turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one, a paperback one, in one of the pews in front of you. And the passage we're going to be looking at today is on page 587 in those paperback Bibles. We're looking at James 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. Let's please stand for the reading of God's word. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and speak to us this morning through your word. Do things in our hearts and in our lives that only your spirit can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first characteristic of a peacemaker is that peacemakers are humble. Peacemakers are humble. James begins this section here with a question. Start it in verse 13. He says this, who is wise and understanding among you? It's almost like James is asking for a show of hands, you know, who out there thinks that they are wise? And maybe how would you respond to that this morning? Are any of you out there wise and understanding? Maybe you could just show your hands. Yeah, don't see any. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, this kind of feels like a trap question here by, by James. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. So claiming to be wise is almost like proof that you're not. It's kind of like claiming to be humble. Same sort of thing. If somebody asks you whether or not you think you're humble. But I think James is asking this question for more than just a trap. This question is related to what we talked about last time I preached, which was six months ago, so I can forgive you if you don't remember what we talked about. But if you go back up in your Bible up to chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, James says that not many of them should become teachers. He's warning not many of you should become teachers teachers. And so what seems to be happening in this church is there's some fighting going on over who should lead or who should teach. And apparently what's happening is that some of these people were claiming that because of their wisdom, they should be in charge. They should have the right to teach. But James here, he's going to challenge this idea. We often think of, of wise people as the ones who, you know, can think about uh, 
very difficult topics, you know, a philosopher sort of person, people who can figure out mental problems. But James is going to argue, as Pastor Bob mentioned earlier, that wisdom is about more than just head knowledge. Wisdom can be seen. And you see this in the rest of verse 13 there. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his, own, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So real wisdom shows itself through good works. If you are a wise person, then other people will know it. They will see it by the way you live. And so if you're the only one that thinks you're wise, well, I've got some news for you. You aren't. Um, you are not wise if you're the only one that thinks that. Wisdom shows up in your life and not just your head. And what James is saying here is that this lived out wisdom should be the most or one of the most important factors in who gets to teach. And that makes sense, right? We want people who practice what they preach. We want people who actually do the things that they say to others to do. But notice here a principle for us today. This church fight was happening because a few individuals had an elevated view of themselves. They did not have the meekness, or you could translate that word as the humility of wisdom. They were proud. And if you think about it, how many of our church fights today happen for the very same reasons? Because someone gets an elevated view of themselves. Someone thinks that they should be in charge or that they could do a better job than everyone else. And then what happens next? They start to complain and, and pretty soon they become bitter. And if nothing's done about that, it eventually breaks out into a fight that does damage to the body of Christ. Now I think it's easy here to think about church fights and, and get somebody in your mind to picture, picture somebody else, that that's that person's problem. When I think about church fighting, I get this person in my mind. But I just challenge you to consider your own pride here this morning. Where has pride caused you to become someone who takes peace rather than gives it? The first characteristic of a peacemaker is that they are humble. Second characteristic of a peacemaker that we see in this passage is that they are selfless. Peacemakers are selfless. And we're going to see this in verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the fight that was happening at this church at that time was caused by a certain kind of wisdom. But it's not wisdom from above. It's not wisdom as God defines it. Rather, it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic wisdom. It's wisdom that follows the ways of the world and wisdom that says focus only on the here and now. And according to verse 16, this kind of wisdom, what does it lead to? It leads to disorder. It leads to every vile practice. It leads to the exact opposite of peace. But notice what's at the root of this kind of counterfeit wisdom. Verse 14 there shows us what's at the root. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. These are the things that destroy the peace of a church. 
And you know, it's not too difficult to figure out why that is. Jealousy is wanting something that someone else has that you don't have. And this jealousy will eventually turn bitter and lead to resentment. And so you can start to envy and resent someone for good things that they have. You can resent someone because of their 401k or their marriage or the way their children behave or their grades or their position in the church or even sometimes you can begin to be jealous and resent someone for their relationship with the Lord. Bitter jealousy does not lead to peace but rather to suspicion, strife, dissension, and hatred. And the same is true for selfish ambition. Ambition is not bad. It means having a strong desire to achieve something. But ambition becomes bad when, you want, when your desire to achieve something becomes all about you. You want to do this or that because of the way it makes you look or the way it makes you feel or the way it you know, lifts you up and exalts you and you aren't thinking at all about how it affects other people. Selfish ambition does not create an atmosphere where peace can grow. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition destroy peace primarily because both are internally focused. They're internally self-focused. But James, he's going to show us the other side of this coin in verse 17. Here he's going to contrast selfish, counterfeit wisdom of the world with the selfless, true wisdom that comes down from above. Look at verse 17 now. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So James here lists seven aspects of godly wisdom. And these seven aspects are completely different than the two aspects of worldly wisdom. Worldlyism, again, is inherently self-focused. But these seven aspects of godly wisdom are inherently relational. They're all concerned about how we relate to one another and how we have peace with one another. And so I think it can be really helpful here to just slowly um, go through each one of these aspects and then to ask ourselves, does that characterize my life? Am I embodying that particular trait? So let's just go over those seven um, aspects of godly wisdom. First, pure. The first aspect of godly wisdom is that it is pure. And this is intentionally put first. Purity means unstained by sin. So godly wisdom is wholesome. No one has to question whether it's not right or wrong. You know, your conscience isn't going off saying, is this okay? Should I do this? With purity, that's never what's happening. Everyone knows that it's right. And so just to ask yourself and evaluate yourself here, is that a description of your life? Is your life pure? Is your mind pure? Do you fill your mind with things that are pure? Second aspect of godly wisdom is that it is peaceful. This means it brings contentment to your soul and also brings unity and harmony among others. We're going to talk about this more in a little bit, but for now, evaluate again your own life. Are you filled? Are you one who is filled with peace or anxiety? Are you one who is content or are you one who is always slightly dissatisfied? Third aspect of godly wisdom is that it is gentle. 
Godly wisdom is gentle. It doesn't mean it's weak, but it does mean that we don't beat people up with the truth. We don't make fun of people who disagree with us. Rather, we pity them if it's on important issues, and we pray for them. This trait of gentleness is about valuing people above valuing being right. So are you gentle in your displays of wisdom? Fourth aspect is that it's reasonable. Godly wisdom is reasonable. This means that we can actually talk to people about controversial things. I think sometimes we get so defensive when someone disagrees with us that we can't even have a serious conversation without it blowing up into a huge argument. But godly wisdom is different than that. It shows itself in its reasonableness. We must be open to reason and must also show the reasonableness of what we believe. So again, does this describe you? Can you passionately disagree with someone and yet still treat them with kindness and respect? Fifth aspect of godly wisdom is that it is merciful. And I'm going to include and full of good fruits. I think these are together as one. Godly wisdom shows up in how compassionate we are in response to other people's needs. Worldly wisdom, again, focuses on what I want, what I need, but godly wisdom flips that around. What do they need? How can I help them, even if I have to sacrifice what I want here? So are you merciful? Are you compassionate? Are you filled with love for those who are in need? Are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? The sixth aspect of godly wisdom is that it is impartial. Again, we talked about this in the book of James in chapter 2, if you want to go back and look more about that. But here's the, the, the basic point. Those who display godly wisdom don't show favoritism. They don't cater to certain people because of how they look or how much money they make or where they come from. So again, is that true of you? Are you impartial? And then the seventh and final aspect of godly wisdom is that it is sincere. That means you are free from lying in hypocrisy. When those who are truly wise speak, they mean it. They're not playing games with words. They are consistent. They don't say one thing and then do another. And so again here, as you evaluate whether or not you are someone who is filled with godly wisdom, do your words line up with your actions? Or do people question whether or not you mean what you say? These seven aspects of godly wisdom are a great description of what it means to be a selfless peacemaker. And notice the results. If you go back down to the book of James, verse 18, notice the results of having this kind of wisdom. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we commit to living by God's wisdom and daily sow the seeds of peace in our lives, then a harvest of righteousness is what we can expect to grow both in our own individual lives and in our communities. I think this is part of what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, it's really easy to think about this lifestyle of peace, and it's, it's easy to talk about it, but it's very, very difficult to actually live it out. 
And so you might have evaluated this and said, you know, I'm not doing very well at those things. I'm not one who lives by godly wisdom. How can I be one who starts to live by the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world? Theologian Tom Wright, he asks the same question here and he poses it in a unique way. He says this, suppose you lived in a village or worked in a factory or a farm. Suppose some of the people you met every day were like the people in verse 16. That's the worldly wisdom. And others were like the people in verse 17, the heavenly wisdom. Which one would you rather see coming toward you down the street? Which one would you rather have as a neighbor? The question answers itself. The challenge is how to become that neighbor yourself. And once more, the answer is this. Wisdom comes from above. Pray for it. God wants us to be peacemakers. He wants us to be humble and selfless, and he wants us to have the true wisdom that comes from above. And here's the thing. He's already told us within the book of James how to get that wisdom. Go back to chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, if you read through those seven lists and said, you know, I lack that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God generously gives out his wisdom to all who asks of him. If you want to be a humble and selfless peacemaker who builds up the church rather than tears it down, then ask the Lord to fill you with those seven aspects of godly wisdom. But I want you to think about this for just a second. Have you ever, even one time in your life, asked God for that kind of wisdom? Have you ever asked God for that kind of wisdom? Not the wisdom to, you know, pick out between two different job opportunities. Not the wisdom to understand some sort of theological uh, challenge. But the wisdom to make peace within the church. Let's be people who ask God for that kind of wisdom. Because the Lord loves to answer that prayer. Peacemakers are humble. Peacemakers are selfless. And then the third characteristic of peacemakers we're going to look at today is that peacemakers are content. Peacemakers are content. We see this in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says here that we fight because we have out-of-control desires. We can't get what we want. And because our desires are, are warring on the inside of us, we then make war on the outside as well. But it's interesting here that James brings up prayer again. He brings up prayer at the end of verse two there he says we don't have that war is happening inside of us because we don't ask you don't have because you don't ask now that seems almost naively simple right Uh, it's like how can that really be true and yet I've seen this come to play come to pass in my life so many different times so I'll get angry or I'll get depressed or I'll get anxious because something in my life is not going the way that I want. And then it kind of, you know, dawns on me and I wake up and I realize I haven't even 
asked God about this. I haven't even asked him to help me in this situation or to solve this issue that I have. I've totally forgot the ruler of the universe who loves me, who cares for me, who's working all things for my good. I have not brought this issue to him up at all. I think our lives would be profoundly different if we could keep the phrase, you do not have because you do not ask, in front of our minds at all times. Now, I'm not saying that God is always going to answer you when you ask or when you pray, but there is something I think God almost always does in our hearts, or at least he does in mine, is that he changes my heart when I come to him with my problems, when I acknowledge my need for him. Prayer is, is so often far more about changing my mind than it is about changing God's mind. When I stop and pray for what I want and I bring my issues before the Lord, I often realize at that moment, hey, I, I might want the wrong things here. I might not be asking for the things that I should be asking for. And my life is out of junction. It's out of connection with the Lord. And actually asking God, bringing my issues, bringing my desires before him helps me to see that. And that's what verse 3 is talking about. Sometimes we ask God and we do not receive because we ask wrongly. We ask him for things to spend on our own passions. And I think this is really important, what's going on here. I think what James is saying here is that we often ask God for things that will essentially replace God in our lives. So let me, let me explain what I mean. So we pray, God, please give me courage. And what we mean by that is, God, I don't want to be scared. I don't want to rely on somebody anymore. Can you just make me more courageous so that I don't need to come to you anymore? If I was more courageous, I wouldn't need to come to you anymore, Lord. Can you make me courageous? Or, or we say something like this, God, please help me to stop this particular sin. But what we mean is, God, that sin makes me look bad. Can you just get rid of it so that people will think better of me and that I don't have to repent as much anymore? This is the kind of prayer that we so frequently make a prayer that seeks to replace God. And of course, God is not going to answer that kind of prayer. And because he doesn't, because we don't get what we want, James says this is what happened. It makes us mad, and those desires aren't getting fulfilled anymore, and so we begin to fight and quarrel with one another. But thankfully, the opposite here can be true as well. If we are satisfied, if we are content with God himself and not just the things that he gives, well, that's when fighting can cease. It's when we can truly say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's when we begin to be peacemakers. And that doesn't mean we don't have any wants or desires. It just means that our greatest desire, the thing we want above all else, is fulfilled by our shepherd, by the Lord himself. I have God. What else can I need? C.S. Lewis once said it this way, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Peace is found in God himself. But you know, what's almost ironic here is that we don't get this peace with God without a fight. 
There's a quote that I saw recently, which is often attributed to George Orwell, and it says this, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. In a fallen world, peace comes with a price tag. We experience peace because somebody else stood up and sacrificed their own peace to do violence on our behalf. This is true not only of our domestic peace, but also of our spiritual peace. We can have peace with God, not because we're good people, not because we try hard to be humble and wise and selfless and content. No, we can only have peace with God because Jesus, our Savior, stood up to the forces of evil and he did violence to them. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed his life on our behalf to deliver us from sin, deliver us from Satan, so that we could live at peace with God. And because of that, because we have peace with God, we can then live at peace with one another. This is what it says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to be peacemakers. We want to be humble. We want to be wise. We want to be selfless. We want to be content and satisfied in you alone. And yet, Lord, we know that we cannot do any of these things apart from your work in our lives. And so again, we pray that your spirit would come and make us like this. For your glory and for your namesake, we ask. Amen.